taste of dragon's gaming podcast. We eat sandwiches and play games. Taste of dragon's gaming podcast. A podcast for everyone's day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Taste the Dragons, the Toddcast, the video game podcast that all you capsuleers listen to. And this week, we talk games preservation with a very special guest. The news is excellent. And finally, we got a whole lot of Dragons of the Week this week. Frank Cifaldi, Kelsey Lewin, Ooh. Norm Caruso, yeah. Pat Contry, Rachel Wilde, and here. Dustin Hubbard. That's Ooh. what I'm talking about. It's a whole lot. Whole lot. Ooh. We're making up for lost time, y'all. It's a whole brood. <laughs> <laughs> and as always, my name is Brian. My name is Troy. And I am Joe. Hey, everyone. Yeah, we're, we're missing a couple people, but... We have a very special guest this week. That's right, audience. On the episode today, we are joined by the host of the Still Loading Podcast, which is a bi-weekly deep dive into many sides of gaming culture, including video game history. Uh, but not just that, he's also a video game collector himself, a super proud dad of a one-year-old, and so much more. Please welcome to the podcast... Josh Coville. Hello. Hello. Thank you so much for that wonderful intro. I do have to correct you already. It is a weekly podcast now. It's no longer oh my bi-weekly. Goodness. Wow. Stepping yeah, it up. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I've well been, done. I've been actually going weekly, I want to say, since uh, summer of last year, late spring last year. Oh. Oh yeah, and you, which is impressive because I, I, as we mentioned, you are a new father, and so I was like, "All right, we're probably gonna, you know, take things at a good pace." But you're like, "Nah, let, let's pick it up. Let's pick up the pace. Let's <laughs> it, make it, this happen." It was it's a it's a lot of work, but it's become one of my favorite things to do by far. You know, I mean, I guess taking care of a kid is cool. You know, I mean, being <laughs> a dad and all that. But uh, yeah, no, I, I love doing the show. So thank you so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to this all week. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Absolutely. And uh, and yeah, as as per usual, I have a opening question, but this one's geared specifically towards Josh. Oh, wow. Ooh. I'm scared. Okay. No. <laughs> All right. All right. No, no, no big question. It's fine. Just, you know, what's your favorite video game of all time? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> How could you Ryan, do this to why him? Would, goodness. Hey, I said it's no pressure, man. You know, it's not like this is going to be on the internet forever. It's fine. You know, it's not <laughs> <Wow>. like uh, <laughs> a definitive thing. <laughs> of all time. All time. What, what do you like to do? You know, what is it, you know, something that you just enjoy? Is it like, is it like your Shawshank Redemption of video games? You know, what is it? I don't, this is the worst answer in the world. I don't have one. I legitimately don't have, and I'm not saying that as a cop-out. I genuinely <laughs> don't have one because there is just too many games to pick and they're too different like every game is too different from the other like i go through I, the best way i can describe it is i go through phases of a game that i'm obsessed with okay uh right now i'm really digging kirby in the forgotten land nice Kirby, yeah um, kirby's out there eating cars and stuff I, i've been really <laughs> liking that even though i only really play it like once a week i've been really liking that earlier this year i was sucked into persona 3 completely hooked on persona 3 nice. oldie but a goodie um, and if you would have asked me like probably at the late 2020 early 2021 it would have been ghost of tsushima like yeah favorite game of all time easily like it just switches like i don't have a favorite game of all time because generally what it would have been probably would have been ocarina of time but now controversial opinion that game bores me to tears now because i played it too much (laughs) (laughs) it's fair that's fair yeah we we know what we know where everything is there's no surprises anymore 
that's pretty much that's pretty much it and also like i don't think it's aged as well as the internet wants you to believe it has and if i'm being honest i, I am more of a fan of majora's mask given the opportunity right now to play one of those two games i'm going majora's mask that's, that's just where i'm at same yeah. i honestly think it's just because like i haven't played majora's as much and there's it feels like there's still so much more to explore that at majora like it's one of those things because there's that time limit and you have every villager kind of works on their own time schedule you almost feel like there is always something you can find in this villager's daily life like you can explore the daily lives of these villagers and there's always something different yeah. and unique that you might not have noticed the first time and I, that's why i find it more enjoyable than like Ocarina has a ton of content too, but I just I played it too much, and now because of the rabid fan base of that uh, game, I just it's kind of I'm kind of over it. <laughs> it it's it, like how many awards can it get? I mean, come on, Ocarina, you're gonna get you're gonna get game of the millennia. You're gonna be game of the year. You're gonna be game of I don't know of our hearts time <laughs> game of time i think is what it's waiting for yeah when it i think that one it will yeah. finally retire itself i think so it's interesting though because majora's mask is the one that's on a time loop but ocarina of time is the other one mm. well and it's I, interesting my one friend pointed this out ocarina of time is a fairly it's it's a little too close to link to the past in terms of structure Yes. Yeah. It's but, a lot close. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, you a know, lot of you have, have you have that an kind intro, of like you have an intro couple of temples, and then you have then the world changes, and you can switch back and forth between the changed worlds, and then there's like a larger number of temples for you to explore, and it yeah. just it and it, the funny thing is, is, like I'm while I am semi criticizing Ocarina of Time, I played Ocarina of Time first, like before. <laughs> Link to the past, like I didn't have a Super Nintendo growing up, so like I love, uh, I loved Ocarina. I remember taking it to, we I was in because I was the one who loved video games. I was in charge at my church of bringing video game consoles to like church picnics for kids to play, like all the multiplayer stuff. Well, the, preaching the real word, the good word out there. The good word of Zelda. <laughs> I'm the pretty good sure Zelda I brought word. Goldeneye, which is a little weird to bring to a church gathering, or <laughs> you know, we'll just that's fine. Shoot your friends. It'll Jesus be fine. would be down. Teamwork. It was yeah, teaching yeah. him teamwork. You know, each of you took a turn making sure you looked at everybody else's screens. It was fine. It was teamwork. Pretty much. <laughs> uh, but then, but then I would also still bring single player games. So I would literally bring Ocarina of Time and just play it in front of people. <laughs> <laughs> you were catching up on your game time. That's what you were doing. <laughs> I would only play it when no one else was at the station. But uh, it was, oh man, the video game obsession ran deep. I would bring it and then not hang out with any other kids there. I would just stay at the video game station all day. <laughs> it was like me at a sleepover. It was just like, yeah, hey, yeah, you guys all do that. I'm going to, what, what, Wait, video game system do you have here pretty much Wait, you would go over to a friend's house like they invite you over for a sleepover yeah they're like watching a movie and then you're just like i'm good in like their dad's office playing hey they knew like, what they got when missed. they invited me <laughs> you're hacking into the into their computer yeah. figuring out where all the games I, are I turn to them i'm in well that's like uh what is it i i would actually i my neighbors growing up i only wanted to spend time with them because they had a Sega Genesis and the other neighbor had a PlayStation and I didn't have any video games at the time. And I was obsessed Yo, with it. Shout <laughs> out to the neighbors who had systems 
for those of yeah. us kids who didn't. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I'm in the same boat. My best friend, he he was the one that got the N64 and like the, the, like the PlayStations when they were coming out. But my parents were like, you got a Nintendo. You're good. Like, don't be, don't ask for too much. You don't need another Nintendo. Yeah, you already have one. It's good. It's still working. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, definitely. I remember a lot of stolen nights going over to my neighbor's house to just be like, let's play. Let's play 64. Um of which Ocarina was there, and and not a good game to play at a friend's house. It is not because it's like it's a single player. You have to yeah. invest time in it. It's not like hey, let's just boot this up and just have some fun for a couple hours. I mean, it's still fun to watch, but it's it's not a multiplayer fun game like the the wrestling games of old, or even uh, I don't know. Uh, there was also like NFL Blitz, I think, was oh, out yeah. for that, so that yeah. system at the time, and GoldenEye, things like that. Perfect Dark. Um, so Ocarina always kind of fell to the deep, but I did end up actually playing Ocarina of Time when I was an adult because. As I just mentioned, I didn't have a 64 because my parents were just like, what? Um, <laughs> but Link to the Past is, if you were asking me one of my favorite games, it would be a Link to the Past for the Super Nintendo. I played that ad nauseum. I played that traditionally. I played that yearly, weekly. Like, it was ingrained in my blood. So so when I was an adult and I could finally play um, an emulation of Ocarina of Time, this is when uh, the Wii... Had like, this is like the, their Master Quest one. Yeah, they, yeah, they had like the Virtual Console. Yeah, 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 yeah. not mm-hmm. even the Master one. It was just a oh, port. Oh, you mean actually the the Virtual Console for the Wii? The Virtual yeah. Console oh, for the right. Wii. You could go back and play these sixty four games, and I saw Ocarina there, and I was like, finally, ten years in the making, I can finally play this game. And it was because it was like Link to the Past. Like you're right, it's pretty much the same. It's, like Light yeah, World, Dark World, similar. all that stuff. Because it was though, it hit me right in my nostalgia in all the right ways because. Like I'm not, I wasn't playing Link to the Past anymore, and here's this new game, but it was new and old at the same time, and I was just like, oh, I get it, I get why people are just like flabbergastedly in love with this game. Yeah, that was just me at 21, <laughs> you know, as you do when you're in college. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, that. Thank you for answering my question. Yeah, because it is one of those things where it's just like, what is it? Is it is it the one that I always like to just have fun with every now and then? Is it the one that you know that I think is a is a masterpiece? And you know, I don't, I don't even game. if I only played it once, it's still an amazing game. The one time I played, so yeah, I love everybody's different answers to I'm that. Currently, I love making lists with video games. I'm currently making a list of the last ten years of gaming since I have like. I've reviewed like everything I've played. Oh yeah, that's right. To try and see like what is like my top ten for the past ten years. Ooh. Oh, that's great. It, it's been fun. I've been using numbers to help. <laughs> using, <laughs> using math. Ugh. Oh, it's beautiful. So, so <laughs> yeah. but but it's interesting because you also because like you said you've chronicled your last like ten years of gaming. Yeah. So do you go off of your thoughts back then, or do you go off of reflecting? And what you have, you know, what you have played after that. It's totally reflective. I, yeah. I go, I go off of what I wrote, like back in the day when I would review, like point review stuff, and then I go, okay, well, what got a high review then? Let me relook at that and see how it stands now in my head against the rest of the things that nice. I. Well, I have a, it's I have a, fun a challenge hobby. for all you guys then. Something that you might be, you could maybe even turn into like a little mini segment that goes on. I did a thing Ooh. on Instagram, and Troy, I believe you followed this, the 30 days of video games. Oh, yeah. And each day was a different prompt. So, for example, day one, your very first video game. Day two, your favorite character. Day three, a game that's underrated. Day four, a guilty pleasure game. And gotcha. I would love to hear from everyone. Like, if you do that prompt and, like, weekly, you just do a different one. So, first week, it'll be like you all go around as, like, your favorite video game. Second week is your favorite character. You could do a 30 weeks of video games or something like that. And uh, 
see where that takes you. But it goes all the way up. You have like saddest game scene, best gameplay, oh, gosh. gaming system of choice, <laughs> favorite antagonist, favorite protagonist. Uh, gotcha. There's a whole bunch. If you guys are interested, I could send you the full list. And in fact, Please I'm not going to do yeah, it yet, it. but I have a second round of 30 days of video games with different prompts as well. Nice, nice. Yeah. yeah, the saddest, the saddest scene would just be Troy just reliving every single video game he's ever played. <laughs> <laughs> every video game is sad when you think about it. It is because they're all so meaningful. Think about the work people put into it. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you so much for answering that question. Uh, so now let's get into. Um, uh, instead of a game this week, we're actually going to talk some game preservation. Yeah. Um, yeah, Josh, I remember a while ago I was listening to one of your podcasts where you, you went pretty deep into the the realm of um, game preservation and talking about the, the video game um, uh, history um, foundation. And um, I found it really, really fascinating as um, someone who doesn't necessarily collect games. I, you kind of awakened an importance that I hadn't really thought about the idea of some of these games falling to the wayside or being forgotten or just simply not being preserved. And I know at that time when I listened to the podcast, you were talking to someone who was very, very deep into it and you were kind of um, burgeoning into the idea. You're already a collector yourself. So I just wanted to ask you, um, first of all, like how would you describe video game preservation and like what's, what's your relation with it uh, these days? How did you come upon it? So video game preservation is kind of like a, it's hard to define because there, there's, let's go with the easy parts to define. First of all, there's, I, I said this in the episode and I think it's a really good way to kind of break down all the different facets of video game preservation. There's essentially three pillars of video game preservation. You have physical preservation, you have digital preservation, and you have cultural preservation or contextual preservation. Yes. Physical preservation is kind of what Joe, Brian, and myself do. We have a crap load of collectibles and uh, <laughs> games and it's not even necessarily just the games themselves it's the paraphernalia it's the peripheral stuff it's the yeah it's the extra stuff that is not necessarily the game itself and like i have a bunch of bioshock infinite collector stuff like different like pins from all the different vigors and stuff like that and like things along those lines but it's not necessarily just physical preservation. It's also digital preservation. Digital preservation is just the act of storing games digitally or storing your game history digitally, whether that's scans of magazines that you could keep physically, but that will deteriorate no matter how well you keep right. it. Digital can preserve that. So they have, you know, you can digitally preserve things, make scans of things, uh, take photos of boxes and like from every different angle possible and store it digitally that way. Like just find some way mm -hmm. to show what it was like, even if you don't have the physical object anymore. And finally is contextual preservation, which is arguably the most important because I did an episode last summer called Tales from the Island that both Brian and Joe were on. And the whole yeah. idea of it was when you when people look at Animal Crossing New Horizons in 30 years, are they going to know how important that game was to the people of the world during the 2020 pandemic? Well, the current pandemic, but the, the specifically during 2020 when the pandemic started and when that game came out. Like if you look at a cartridge and you play that game, you're not going to understand all the context around it, how people literally had birthday parties on each other's islands and celebrated holidays on each other's islands and found ways to connect with different people on their respective mm -hmm. islands that never would have happened otherwise. And it was a way for friends to stay connected to each other and kind of have that sense of normalcy because you could create your own living space and invite your people 
into your living space digitally. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a fake one, but it's it's it was still a digital living space that you created, and you can invite your friends to it. And that's kind of where contextual preservation is important because you don't get that if you just have a copy of the game. Like you don't, you're missing all of that. And even if you take out the cultural aspects of it, even if you just look at some of the legal aspects of it, like if you look at like a game like Donkey Kong, for example, mm-hmm. um, Nintendo got sued for that game by Universal because Universal thought right. that it was too similar to King Kong. And the way Nintendo won that lawsuit, this is another re- doubly important because it creates a video game later on, which I'll get into. But the lawyer for Nintendo argued that, well, oh, this right. is garbage because you know, Universal, you got sued for this originally, and Universal won that it's public domain. So when they sued Nintendo, Nintendo's like, well, if it's public domain, even if this was a copyright issue, which it's not, you can't sue us because it's public domain. And the lawyer won that argument for won that legal case for Nintendo, and his name was Jack Kirby. Only yes. then he becomes the namesake of Kirby. Our yeah. favorite pink ball. Our favorite pink ball. So it's it's I think it was Jack Kirby. I'm gonna double check that I because it wasn't Jack Kirby also a comic yes. book artist. Yes. Jack the King Kirby. Yeah. <laughs> Creator of the Fantastic Four with Stanley. That's maybe his first name is maybe maybe he, his first name is Herbie, not Jack. It's John <laughs> Kirby. Oh my gosh. We're, his name we're just could be it was Kirby John Kirby. Kirby. That's who it was, not Jack Kirby. Go, I was, I was confusing yeah, yeah, it right. with uh I was gonna say I'm like Jack Kirby I know is from comic books. There can't be two important people named Jack Kirby that both had long lasting stamps on two incredibly <laughs> important mediums, but it was close. <laughs> Very, very close. close. That is very close. I love how Nintendo takes names from just people they know. Yeah. Like, like just like with Mario is from their landlord. And, <laughs> hey, our lawyer was really good. Cool. Let's name a character after him. I mean, we're not going to pay him royalties for that, but you know. No, of course not. They have the honor of the name, though. That's what <laughs> <Yeah>. matters. <laughs> He's a lawyer. He already makes enough money. He's fine. True. That's true. <laughs> I think that uh, that contextual preservation is super important because especially with an art form that's interactive, where you're going to be getting such varying experiences and not just how you perceive those experiences. Like, yeah, with movies and and uh, and, and books and whatnot, you're going to be reading the same words and then you, ca- you have your opinion and how it feels to you. You can express that. But with, with uh, video games, you may not actually see the same things that someone else saw mm-hmm. while playing this game to its completion. And with that, like, how do you tell those stories? How do you preserve that, um, those different experiences? And it's about sharing with them, you know, and, and recording them and, and writing them down into articles or, or whatnot. And I think that is a, a fascinating um, journey uh, to take part in, to go on. And that's why it's it's so hard to actually preserve video games in a sense, like entire in their in its entirety, because everyone's experience is going to be so different and so new, so unique. Like when you go see a movie, everyone has the same experience. You may feel people may feel different emotions from the movie, but the experience itself does not change. Yep. However, I mean, you can maybe go see a movie in a theater versus being at home, and that yeah, that changes the experience of watching it. But the actual the storyline is going to be the same every time. The events, the shots, like everything's going to be the same every time same thing for when reading a book same thing for when listening to music like it's it's a static it's a stationary static medium that once something is created unless they go back and re redo it which 
you kind of see that now with like with all the digital stuff now like they'll take out episodes of tv shows or they'll digitally remove things from tv shows or you just pull a george lucas and ruin everything um (laughs) (laughs) yeah he really believed in the cgi he He believed in the cgi and the cgi wanted to believe in him i (laughs) still say that i think george lucas is really good at setting up worlds and plot lines he just has no idea how to write dialogue i think he actually said like if you look at all the plot lines of the of the prequels i feel like that actually is like some solid storytelling in terms of like the point to point but the transitions to those points are ludicrous Okay, I have some very strong feelings about this, and I agree, but this would be an entirely different podcast to do. But I think I need to point out the reason that some of those things are really good is because they are directly taken from other things, and he didn't know how to sew them together. And I'm done. <laughs> are you talking about like the and, and you talking about the original movies directly taking from other things, or in the his, prequels? His yes, influences, his, his storylines, his storylines, yeah. the way they were shot, the way characters were drawn, the way they were created, their their outfits they were wearing. A lot of it is homage to other yeah. things Wasn't, that he um, loved. The original yeah. Star Wars, like the Hidden Fortress from Akira Kurosawa or something like that? Oh, it's that like, is one of the many that's, movies yeah, of, of many Kurosawa things, yeah. specifically <laughs> that he, yes. Yeah. But, but that's the thing though. Like, like like you said, like even though movies is all the same every single time, video games are just different every single time every you time. play them. Like even, even people who play them professionally, like they speed run them. It, you know, this is what they do. Even if it's like a 10 minute speed run of a game, it's different every single time. There's no one way you're ever going to see the game. It's just going to be a new experience every single time. And I love that about video games. And it's super important too, because like those experiences while important, it's like you can't capture everyone's experience. It's physically impossible. Like it would be literally impossible to capture every single person's experience. And that's when you kind of get into curation of, of, preservation where it's like well what things do you preserve what things don't you preserve and the answer is like everything and nothing like you there's no right Mm -hmm. answer as to what you should preserve and what you shouldn't and um, some of the the video game history foundation which uh spoiler alert is uh the part of some of the dragons of the week which we'll get into later on um, they do a great job at trying to like they're very open and candid about like how they decide to preserve things. And they're like, well, we don't know if like, this means nothing to us, but it might be important later on. So we don't know. So we're going to preserve it because we have, it doesn't seem important, but that doesn't mean it's not important because we have no idea what's going to be needed, you know, 20, 30 years down the line. And like, what is still important to people when they're doing research on video games. But even then they talk about like how hard it is to preserve, especially the games we have now, the games as a service, like, how do you preserve Fortnite? Yeah. <laughs> the game that, you know, three years ago, the game is nothing like what it is now. There wasn't even, a, what is mm-hmm. it? There was only one map three years ago, right? And now there's two or something. I've, I've never played Fortnite. You can tell. The map has changed. Or, it's, well, yeah. Right. Well, it also started out as a completely different game. It started out as just a crafting game that you... Survival that, game. Yeah, survival game. And then they they branched out and did this battle royale because of, uh, of DayZ. And then... Uh, um, and then it just blew up. <laughs> and now and it they, is they, what it is. They and they put in a bunch of dances and said, yeah. "We're geniuses. We're geniuses." We've done it. And also, we don't owe anybody money. <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Carlton. Oh wait, we do. Never mind. <laughs> Taking them out. <laughs> 
I think with game preservation, I, I don't think I answered your one question, Troy, of how I got into it specifically. But before I before I get into, it, I think game preservation is just like what it is. It's nebulous. It's everything and nothing. It's it's hard because it's like there are easy things you can point to, like oh, if I'm storing a copy of this game, I'm preserving it, and in some way, shape, and right. form, you are. And same thing digitally. Um, I think some of the people who do some of the best work in terms of game preservations are the ones who, and this one isn't a dragon of the week, but like Jeremy Parrish of the Retronauts podcast, he will, Mm -hmm. he's doing a thing called Game Boy World where he is buying complete in box copies of Game Boy games, taking out the manuals, photographing the boxes, photographing the manuals, scanning the manuals, photographing the games, playing every one of the games and doing a little video uh, and a little mini review of each of the games. And you can find it on his YouTube channel. If you search Jeremy Parrish, Um, nice. He, that's so cool. And like you can watch, he's done tons and tons and tons of them. There's so many out there. There he has a he has a podcast feed, a video podcast feed. So you could probably find that on. I think it's called Video Works, is what he's calling it. But he he started doing stuff where like um, he started looking down the NES rabbit hole, and then all of a sudden he's like. Well, if I want to like look at the context of the NES, I should also look at what Sega did in Japan at the same time because Famicom mm-hmm. and the SG-1000, for those who don't know, the SG-1000 is the original Sega Master System, sort of. Um, there was the SG-1000, then the SG, I think, 2000, and the SG Mark III. And Mark III is what we got as Sega Master System. So Sega actually had two consoles out, but only in Japan. Uh, that came out before the Sega Master System in the U.S. So he goes back and he starts looking at all the SG-1000 games and determining like and, yeah. tr- and like looking at all those. So that way he can really get a full idea of the context of when he's looking at a Famicom game from you know 1983. How does that compare to an SG-1000 game from 1983? And they actually came out on the same yeah. date, which is kind of crazy to think about the SG-1000 so, and Famicom. So, so happy that there are people doing this good work out there and I can oh I can see how that kernel of like hey I want to I, I want to uh, uh, record and archive this little piece of history will then lead you to the next piece of history it leads you to the next piece of history it leads you to like this whole like you like you open up this, this bag <laughs> this and there's Pandora's so much box more in there video game preservation yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I just I love 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 that there are people out there making that happen and makes me feel real, oh yeah, <laughs> real lazy. I'm just like, I just play them and then put them down <laughs> and then talk about it. <laughs> well, every, all, what you guys do is also a type of preservation. It's the cultural preservation you're talking about. It's mm. not even necessarily just your opinions either. By sharing like kind of like news and also like one of the reasons I love your guys' podcast is that you don't do just news. Like I'm so tired of video game news podcasts because they're everywhere. <laughs> right, right. What I like yeah. about your guys' show is that you have a different way of looking at video games and you, you'll either do reviews, you'll do like the dragons of the week is a brilliant idea because it, it shares your love of video games and it gives a little bit of each of your personalities too, by mm-hmm. who's choosing the dragon of the week. Um, but it's like this, like podcasting itself. And this isn't to, you know, you know, fluff any of us up or sound like braggy, but like <laughs> it's a type, it is a type of preservation. Like when you're podcasting about video games, you're giving some level of cultural context 
to video games, whether it's a retrospective of an old game that you're playing for the first time, you're covering the context of like how a game has aged in terms of like, does it hold up still under modern scrutiny type of thing? Yeah. And I think, you know, like you said, kind of everything is, it can be considered a a form of um, cultural, cultural cultural, cultural preservation. Because like, sometimes I will go back and I will find podcasts from like when the pandemic first started happening. Like if I find a new podcast and I like them, I may go back to be like how did they deal with this transition what was how how were they gaming you know in that first month and i find that fascinating and that is archived that's there uh to check out and and i think it's important uh, on a whole that it is but let, let's switch over to um some some physical preservation uh you talked a little bit about it with retro game retro game knots oh retro knots retro knots retro knots yeah. thank you you talked a little bit of retro knots where they're actually taking uh, uh, the physical games and then they are digitizing them well, so they have an, an archive. Retro knots is just a podcast similar to what ours is, mm-hmm. like yours and our and mine is. But Jeremy Parrish is the host, of, one of the hosts of Retro Knots, and he does this whole uh, archiving thing on his own, like it's away from. Oh, Retronauts. I see, on his own. But he's but he's one of the hosts of Retro Knots. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Um, so I love the fact that he is amassing this collection and then and then able to take these manuals and these game boxes and then keep them in a place where they won't deteriorate. Um, when it comes to the physical stuff, like how did you get into collecting? Do you remember was lo- what was like the first bit of video game that you got or or old manual that you're like, ooh, I need to put this someplace. I need to put this on a wall. <laughs> yeah. So actually, real quick, I'll answer two questions because I never did sure, answer sure, your sure. question of how I got into preservation, and it was it, oh yeah, yeah. Yes. it was Retronauts. <laughs> it was Retronauts. I'll just give okay. that as a short answer. They had an episode cool, cool. with Frank Cifaldi, who we're talking about later on, and it just fascinated me. So that that's pretty much how I kind of got really interested in it. Um, and I'm not really other than the podcast, which I don't really consider that much of a preservation thing. Like I I, I know I said it mm-hmm. is, and it, that is true. But I don't really think, you know, I'm not documenting Game Boy games or like Virtual Boy games mm-hmm. or anything like that. I'm I'm not get scanning in manuals. I'm just talking about games. But um and trying to yeah. raise awareness <laughs> for it. I would say that's the closest. But in terms of collecting, how I got into collecting, it's twofold. One, angry video game nerd. Really? Uh, I was obs- guy, I right? really like the Angry Video Game Nerd. Uh, yeah. And I still do. I don't watch this stuff nearly as often, but I really like the Angry Video Game Nerd. And back in like 2010, like 2008 or 9 is when I first kind of discovered his channel. And he started talking about things like Sword Quest for the Atari and for talking about all the different NES accessories. And like showing all the different like in the power glove and all this other stuff that I had never heard of at the time. And I'm like, holy crap, gaming could do all this back in the 80s. And it just it, wow. it blew my mind. Just some of the stuff like uh, if you if people haven't heard the sword quest story that I think that's like the crystallizing moment for me. Joe, I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, yes. Yeah. I haven't heard of it. Uh, so, all right, all right, Troy. Well, buckle up your sit-downs. <laughs> so, <laughs> I got a story for you. Um, Welcome to the podcast, Troy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, buckles on, helmets going. Let's get the sword. So, Atari back in its heyday, you know, late 70s, early 80s, specifically more in the early 80s, it was raking in so much money. Like, it was hand over fist, way, like obscene amounts of money. Um and right. they held a they created a game series called Sword Quest and each there's four games in total Earth World, Fire World, oh. Water World and Air World. 
and each one was its own game. Each it's one like was its, its own, own little, game. little MCU. Yeah. And they had All a tournament. Connected. The way it would work is that each game would come with obviously the box and game and manual, but also came with a comic book. And sweet. The, in the comic book, you would have you basically you would play through the game and a random two numbers would pop up on screen and it was a page number and a panel number. Oh, get out! And of inside here. that panel was a hidden word that you had to find in oh, the comic book. Damn, panel. that's fun! Once you played through the whole game and got all of the panels and found all of the words, you had to unscramble the sentence because all the words were jumbled up. So you had to unscramble the words and find the hidden phrase. And usually, there's like some type of like hint at the beginning of the comic. Um, yeah. And usually you would have to unscramble it and use that hint at the beginning to unscramble the sentence. And the comic book artists were no slouches either. I think George Perez, who I think he passed away recently, didn't he? Yeah, he this, week, yep. this past week. This past, this past week. week. The comic book artist, um, right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. He was an uh, unbelievable, brilliantly wonderful force of in the world. Yeah. He was yeah. just a great person um, and a really amazing comic artist uh, and writer. Sorry to yep. hear that. Yeah, it's it. I mean, it's kind of timely we're bringing it up then because he he was the artist for the Sword Quest games. Um, and oh. I, there, I forget who else worked on the comic books. Oh, Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas. Um, and besides George Perez, Dick Giordano also did the artwork. Yeah. Oh, wow. sorry, he inked yep. it. He inked it. Um, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I, so those four were all involved in the comic book. So big names in the in the comic book industry, right? And so after you would unscramble those words, after finding all the hidden words in all the panels, you would submit it into Atari. And all the winners would come together for one final competition, one final level. What? And whoever won that would win what? a grand uh, would win a prize. Now Holy crap. the prize at the time, I don't know what it is. I was think an I actual sword. Adjusted for inflation. <laughs> You're not wrong, actually. You said sword, right? Just a seven-year-old yeah, with a sword. Yeah, no, no, yeah. um, so the fully sharpened. The prize is ahead. No, you go, kiddo. I'm I'm gonna read this off because there is no way I would be able to memorize this otherwise. Um, okay, yeah, go ahead. There is. Let me see if I can find. I did find the list originally, um, mm-hmm. but it was the prizes weren't just like normal prizes. It was. Each prize was worth $25,000 in 1982 money, mind you. So adjust that for inflation. Right. You're looking at two to three times the value now, whatever 1982 to current is. Um, the winner of Earthworld, and there was going to be a competition for all four of these, right? $25,000 oh, wow. prize for each for all four of these. The winner of Earthworld won a Talisman of Penultimate Truth, which was an 18-carat solid gold what? disc studded with 12 <laughs> diamonds and the birthstones of the 12 what? Zodiacs, along with a miniature white gold sword set atop it. Oh, my god! That's the yeah. first prize. That's the first prize. The winner what? of Fireworld won the Chalice of Light, a goblet made of platinum and gold studded with diamonds, rubies, sapphires, pearls, and green jade. Uh, that person actually ended up growing up to be Little John. Uh, <laughs> oh, that's where he got that, the goblet. That's goblins. where he got the goblet from. Yeah. Very big Atari player. Oh, absolutely. He was really good. The winner of Waterworld won the Crown of Life, a solid gold crown decorated with diamonds, rubies, sapphires, and aquamarines. Was there just a gold sale happening <laughs> at the Kmart that in the 80s? Just, just buy one, get three free? Like, dang. Then, Look at Atari putting in the money. <laughs> Atari just had 
FU levels of money, man. Like they just had. Yeah, yeah they did. They had <laughs> so much money. money. They were bought out by Time Warner as well around then, like but either right before then or during then. So like it was, they just had so much money. It was crazy. And then the winner of Airworld would get the Philosopher's Stone, a large piece of white jade in an 18 karat gold box encrusted with emeralds, Gosh. rubies, and diamonds. That... Now, <sighs> Troy. Yeah, you want to win. You want to win. It gets better. Yeah. Yeah, it gets what, better. What? What are you gonna do? <laughs> like, what else is there? They're gonna encase you in gold. <laughs> <laughs> the four winners would come back for one final competition. Now they would all reconvene for one final c- competition to win the sword of ultimate sorcery, which was a silver blade which with an eighteen karat gold magic. handle covered with diamonds, emeralds, sapphires, and rubies, and it was valued at $50,000 at the time of the competition. They also became the Avatar. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Then, they mastered all four elements. You attack the rest of the winners, take all their goblets, put them on, and then become a god. Now, the Atari god. You become Ganon. You become Ganon. That's how Ganon's Ganon's origin story. It is. It is. Big Atari player, just like Lil John. (laughs) There's a direct line between Lil John and Ganon. We all knew it. Oh, absolutely. It was just 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 right underneath the surface. But no, so here's the sad part. Right around the second comp, after the second competition, Atari pretty much went under it was the 1983 uh, game mar- north american <laughs> game market crash be very yeah, clear yeah, yeah. The game market the mm-hmm. the game market did not crash outside of north america for the most part but north america just got destroyed um yeah. so atari never held the third and fourth competitions in fact oh. so much so while the first two games did get commercial releases the third game technically did but it was by mail order from atari's magazine so that already decreased the amount of people who get it. Oh. And then the fourth one never existed. They just never made it. All of these prizes are confirmed to exist. In fact, the the first what? prize, the the disc, the gold, the I, the, I totally yeah, the, blanked the, the, disc the, with the sword talisman. On top. Um, yeah. That no longer exists because the person smelted it down. I'm sure the rubies are all still there, <laughs> but the talisman's gone. The chalice, so far as we know, so far as people know, still exists. Like the the winner of that still has it, or like either sold it or something. But it still is in physical. It's still intact. The third and fourth prizes, the crown, the crown, people believe got awarded, but no one really knows to who. And then the fourth prize just never got awarded, and so also the sword never got awarded. But no one really Whoa. knows what happens to the other prizes that didn't get awarded. It's they, you know, when Atari went under, no one has been able to find him since. So there's a lot of conspiracy theories over like it wasn't the per, like the the dude who owned Warner Warner at the time. Does he have it? Um, does Jack Tremiel, who was like, uh, I think he was there at the time. I'm totally forgetting it now, but. Um, <laughs> This sounds like a real life Dungeons and Dragons quest to go assemble these artifacts. Yeah, this sounds like an episode of uh, Carmen San Diego. Right. Like, that's what this sounds like to me. Like, I feel like, has anybody looked for the sword on the bottom of a lake? Good, good question. Good, good question. question. Well, and actually, in speaking of comics, <laughs> though, there was a comic book series that came out a few years ago that uh, there, uh, the writer Chris Sims, and I forget who else worked on it basically took that idea of like two friends trying to complete the sword quest quest like they remember doing it as kids 
Like that was the whole angle <laughs> of the comic book. They remember doing the sword quest stuff oh, as wow. kids. So now they're like years later and it's a little bit sad, but the beginning of the comic book begins. I haven't even finished it. I only read like a little bit of the first book, but the main yeah. character, he is has terminal cancer. Whoa. And so he wants to do this as a way to make himself feel better. Like this is when he remembers being happy. So he's trying to get all his friends together before he dies of cancer so they can oh do this goodness. sword quest. Wow. That, that's an interesting uh, premise for a comic. Nice. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, that's fascinating on, on so many different levels. Oh. Like I, I was already blown away just on the idea that they made a game where you had to use this comic book to actually beat and solve riddles. That is brilliant that you don't get to see in many games these days. Sometimes you do. Um, but let alone just gold gold crowns well, and, and, stuff. and it's Incredible. also interesting too because like we're talking about games preservation like if you wanted to play that game now you also would have to have the comic in order to play it or at least a scan of it so somebody if you want to play you have to find both of those right. things in order right. to play it um and it's one of those things because like and especially back in the day um a lot of games in order to prevent piracy they would include something with it that you would have to input into the screen in order to actually play it. Like mm-hmm. I know for like Star Control 2, it actually included a map. And it would, it would list coordinates and you would have to say what it is. Like you would have to tell them what the name of the thing that they're referencing is. Do you all find that preservation has gotten easier because uploading things and, you know, Web 2 is so, so, so simple? Yeah. Like I, if I got stuck in in a, on a game, I could just Google whatever that sheet is, whatever that comic is, and good chance I may find someone who scanned it somewhere on the internet at some time over the past ten years. I mean, even if you look back, we uh, a little hint at something being promoted a little bit later on, but like Monkey Island had to call a pirate wheel or dial a pirate wheel, yep. and you had yep. to spin the wheel and match the pirates to different things, and it was a weird way at like. Um, so it's like a DRM almost, like to make sure. It, it was. Oh, yeah. wait, wait. It really was. Was it's there exactly an actual wheel? Yeah, yeah, it was yeah, a yeah. physical wheel that you would spin. I don't know exactly. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. It was to, okay. So, because Monkey Island when it had come out, it was it, the it's, Monkey Island two. I can talk. I can. I can say for and my own purposes. I my first copy of Monkey Island two was not a real copy of the game. It was like somebody who had handed me just the the disc essentially, or you know, mm-hmm. handed me you know, and the it floppy, was like yeah. the floppy for it, and it was just a, like a demo. Oh, okay. It wasn't like the whole game. It was only one piece of the game, and if you yeah. didn't have that wheel, you couldn't play anything more than the first. I, I want to say the first or the second level. Wow. So until I actually got the full game, which mm-hmm. came with the disc, that was how they were able to combat the piracy. Piracy, well, literally. Because yeah. literally, you could so, just copy it, and then you were good. <laughs> okay. So 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 here's a question. Uh, um, controversial question like i've played monkey islands one and two but i played the re-releases of them okay how where does that fall for you all when it comes to video game preservation because it sounds like i'm missing out on like how the game was originally played but i still have a version of it that's updated and different now granted that they they you have the original uh graphics but you could also have the updated graphics with it but i'm playing it also on a controller not a computer like at what point is preservation not actually preserving the original product i i don't know for for me i think actually it's still preservation it's just a different form of it you're just a different generation that's getting to experience the game i do feel like having people to talk to that were from the time that did play it is even even more it just gives a little more like I don't know what it is about it. There's just something fun to hear. Like it, like you played it and you probably mm-hmm. still had a great time. Mm-hmm. It probably meant something completely different. Like Ocarina is a great example of this. 
it means something completely different for people playing it now because every game that they've played since then is 10 times bigger. All the puzzles are harder and it's not, you know, it's nowhere near the graphical I, feats that it was. I don't know. That water temple is pretty hard. I literally <laughs> won't continue. I will only play the game up into the water temple and then I stop. I will not go anywhere. I'm not wasting time in that temple ever again. Yeah. But, but, but ultimately, I think that that's actually still, it's still, the experience okay. you're having is still preserving a really great game you're just not having the hardship or not even hardships you're just not having the same guess, kind of experience about guess, the materials like, you're playing but like with. is it okay because this is news to me so as far as i was aware i played monkey island one you did. but I, now i kind of feel like maybe i didn't quite well no you you did i think the thing is that there's elements that are just impossible to preserve because like like, right. let, let's be honest. Like, if you're trying to make a commercial product now, why would you include that Dial a Pirate thing except for kicks and giggles? <laughs> yeah. Like, it would be really cool yeah. if they did that. It'd be actually really, actually, that'd be really freaking cool. But, that'd be it, really cool, but yeah. in terms of like gameplay, like, especially for like digital copies, you can't do that. Like, you know, like, especially when you're trying to sell games yeah. digitally, there are ways that some games have actually found ways around it. I actually was thinking about this. You ever play Infamous Second Son's Papercraft or Paper Trail? Yes, I did. What a deep pull you're right? doing right now. I just thought I love it. <laughs> Holy crap. That was one of the coolest things ever. I was blown away by that. It was it was like on the same level of sword quest to me in terms of not in terms of prizes. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't get twenty five thousand dollars <laughs> worth of gold. But it was like you went to this website and you had to actually use real detective skills of like, yeah. you know, saying you forgot your login ID and then uh, logging onto like their email that way. It was re- logging onto yeah. an account it was, in different ways. It was crazy. And I don't quite remember what an infamous two got you there, either like a sign or a text that was like, go to a real site. And when you went there, there was an entirely mock site that led you down this amazing out of game detective like just uh, like a uh, story yeah. that 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 really kind of it didn't it didn't like um manifest in the in the larger picture of the game but kind of helped fill in the world uh in a way that I thought was brilliant we were printing things out of the computer we were we were folding things trying to get like this origami like puzzle <laughs> solved and like Manda and I we both were super invested and you're right I haven't done things like that in games and I was surprised it was there it was so cool AR adventure it was wonderful oh, yeah. and it was something that like there's that website's not going to be up forever but and that that nope. part of that game is permanently gone no matter even if even if like um you know we don't have issues now where like one of my biggest issues now is that like if you buy a game even take out the whole digital versus physical argument which is always going to be a raging thing amongst collectors i'm much more open to digital now because physical is pretty much useless at this point because they're just keys to unlock digital games and it's heartbreaking oh like new like like new physical copies yeah, of games. I, yeah I, I still buy it. Game on yeah. it i still buy new physical because i like the artwork and, I, and it's the same price so it's not like i'm getting anything but like other than the immediacy of having a digital one which i don't need mm-hmm. it's just it, that that to me though the whole the advent of all the digital stuff is the biggest like boon to game preservation and also one of the things that it hinders it the most because you have so much now where games can be changed completely or like uh, things taken out completely. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Because like you said, there's so many day one patches that some games don't even include their ending without a day one patch in order to prevent people from, you know, if they got early copies, they want to be able to leak the ending on it. Or like with Tomb Raider, Tomb Raider, I think the third one, um, the day one patch completely changed the ending or not completely, but it changed the ending 
so much so that one guy uh, actually played it completely through and didn't have an internet connection. So he went online and he was like, hey, that ending was really crazy, wasn't it, guys? And everybody's like, what are you talking about, man? And wow. they all were like calling him liars. Like, no, seriously, like there was a picture of like a dinosaur and like there's a bunch of other stuff. What? Like, and I was like, oh, oh what yeah. do you think this is going to mean for the next one? Everybody's like, you're lying. No, you're completely lying. He's like, no, I'm really not. And the developers of the game had to come How? out and be like, okay, the reason why this is is because yeah. he doesn't have the patch and we patched this out how do you preserve a medium that can completely rewrite its history change like that can completely erase its history and what is it um troy i've been wanting to do that assassin's creed 2 episode with you i've had to stop it because i my xbox 360 won't connect to the internet right now and so i lost my save file oh Oh, man i'm I'm like why this is like an Assassin's Creed 2 is not like a new game like it's it's a pretty old no. game at this point so I'm blown away by the fact that I can't access my save file because it's connected to my Xbox Live account I'm like that is garbage I get oh. I'm literally holding back swear words right now because I'm so upset <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then even Mass I'm Effect so 3 sorry. Mass Effect 3 completely changed its ending because of how people thought about it like right. it's interesting how you preserve that or how you don't preserve that or what do you you know how do you even talk about well, that in context uh, the best way you can preserve it is news articles and podcasting that's part of the exactly. contextual preservation where you go back <laughs> and like one of the things that I try to do I don't do it often because it's a lot of work but I should do it more often than I do um, when I'm doing research <laughs> on a video game's history, I try to look at news articles and reviews from magazine publications at the time because that yes. really shows what reviewers were thinking in a time and place. And reviews, I feel like your audience probably would already know this, but I feel like it's worth saying anyway. Reviews are linked to a specific time and place and the expectations of that specific time and place. So just because a reviewer loves something or hates something does not mean that they are correct. And it does not mean that you're Mm -hmm. correct. Your expectations, like however you feel about a game at the time is based off your expectations of that uh, at that time. And your expectations are completely directly linked to where you are at currently in your life. So exactly. If you look yeah, at it, reviews of Earthbound, one of the most world-renowned JRPGs of all time, it was panned. People hated the graphics. Yeah, mm-hmm. People hated Dang. the gameplay. Even though arguably there is some mechanics in that game that I really wish RPGs would bring back, like the yeah. uh, like when perfect example when you are so overpowered that enemies don't mean anything to you. When you get into an, an encounter with them, you don't even have to fight them. It just kills them. Gives you like one experience. It's like we're not going to waste your time with this. We we know you could one shot all of these so let's just not bother with it like i wish games would do that still yeah and also you also have to think about it reviewers especially nowadays they play games completely different than the rest of us yes a lot of crunch a lot of them are on the crunch all of them are like listen i gotta play this game i only have three days to play this and i don't know how long this is so i gotta just go through it and get done and some games the reviewers get a chance to choose like, oh, sweet. I was looking forward to this. I really want to play this. And other ones are like, hey, listen, you got to review to uh, Barbie World and uh, you got two days to do it. Don't you and throw shade on Barbie was World. To actually play all of Barbie World. Exactly. They're upset right. the open world Barbie game. They you... can't enjoy because they're too busy having to cram another 40 hours into Elden Ring. Like, Why? <laughs> Who doesn't want to hang out with Barbie? And then they all get ang- <laughs> then people get angry at them, like, well, you didn't beat the game, so you can't give an accurate view. I'm like, that's not necessarily true. 
Like, don't get me wrong. Exactly. I'm not yeah. saying that you could give a comprehensive retrospective or deep dive into a game unless you play a game all the way through. But if you're just talking mm-hmm. about reviewing it, I think if you've played an 80 hours out of like a 200 hour game, I'm pretty sure you have a good idea if the yeah. game is good or not at that point. And you're yeah. you're giving you're giving your experience, whatever or however long that experience was, you're telling your audience or writing what your experience was and what whatever it may be. So there's there's no wrong answer there. There isn't. And also, especially as we were talking about with day one patches, a lot of these players, actually almost none of them are playing it with that day one patch. So they're playing it with either outdated systems or glitches or any a number of things that could be going wrong. But they also have the companies telling them, don't worry, we're all fi- the day one patch fixes this. So they don't include that. And then if it doesn't fix it, that's still part of their review. And it's, it's very interesting how reviews yeah. happen nowadays. But you're right. It's great to see how that preservation of the of context of yeah. the time when those games come out is so important. When I was... Earlier this year, playing through the Halo series for the first time, I l- fell in love with Halo 2. So and good. I was doing a thing every time I beat the game, I would go and then watch a bunch of reviews and just watch what people from back then said about it. And I, I was surprised that people really hated Halo 2 on a larger scale. It was a cliffhanger ending uh, that you played as the the villains from the first game, which mm-hmm. a lot of people were like, oh, you're shoving this message down my throat. And in my head, I'm like, you get to play as Keith David. Yeah. I, what actually, is there not to like? I love the Arbiter. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I, I, I come on. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. But, but I, I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't gone and read what the... Mm-hmm what the world was kind of like at that time in the in the mid 2000s and it's fascinating it's Reviews a fascinating are tied thing. to the expectations of personalities of the journalists at the time that it came out it means nothing more nothing less just and you can disagree with review you can agree with review years later you may end up disagreeing like i think another good example uh, bioshock infinite it was critically praised and then years later people it's kind of soured on a lot of people i disagree with that personally i still love the game but i know there's Mm -hmm. a growing perception in the public of people who have just kind of soured on it and it's unfortunate in my opinion but at the same time you know that's just my opinion i I still love the game but you know to each their own of course yeah um yeah, <laughs> and uh, we, I completely branched off from uh, com- completely tangented back from your original question of how I got into collecting. We started with the angry yeah. video that doesn't game sound nerd. like us at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, every time uh, I, we get to to see each other, I just see a lovely wall, just this top to bottom of of video games, just stacked video game paraphernalia, video game uh, consoles, video game manuals, and I love it. Um, is there a way you could explain like how big your your collection is or how i mean that's something size doesn't matter troy you should i mean oh, <laughs> uh no so, um, okay uh, keep that in mind <laughs> uh so i guess um i have over a thousand games in my collection that i know i know Dang. i know it's higher than Woo. that i don't know exactly how much more because i i've st- i'm lazy with cataloging um because <laughs> there's a lot in here but uh, yeah. I got into it because of Angry Video Game Nerd. And also at my local library at a used book sale, I found, uh, I want to say Tecmo Bowl nice. and a game. boxed copy of the original Sonic the Hedgehog. And I paid a dollar for each of them. like So $2 total. Bargain. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. I like video games. And I, I like, you know, I, I like uh, they're a dollar. So why not? Blah, blah, blah. And it just kind of went from there. And then as I discovered AVGN stuff and learning about the history of things, I'm like, whoa, this is actually really interesting. I would love to get my hands on some of this to just to say I have it and try some of these out to see if yeah. they still work. 
Um, like I would say for a perfect example, I, I'm not going to go pick it up and grab it, but I have a Sega Pico or Pico. I think it's a Pico. Mm-hmm. Um, Pico. Which I have no idea what that is. Troy, what you is a Sega Pico? would love it. Yeah. It's not, I don't, they, they, it's more of an edutainment system. I'm even more on board than anything else. <laughs> but basically, it's so this came out in like 92, I want to say. I don't know the exact year, but it's early 90s, pre 95 for sure. And uh-huh. you, you, it's a normal AV cables, you plug it into your TV, but it's a touch screen that you can, and it's a storybook. Like the cartridges are literally storybooks. Like there's a cartridge bottom and a storybook top and they're all connected. And you plug the cartridge into this, this almost suitcase looking thing and you open it up and you, as you flip the pages, this, what, (laughs) what happens on the TV changes to what's on the page because it can recognize when you flip the page and then, wow. So the page is, the book is both a game and like a controller. Well, there's a little for pen. the game that's happening on screen. There's a yeah. pen with a button on it, and you use that as a touch screen, essentially. Like whatever you press down, and you press a button. So you click on things with the pen, and you kind of poke them, and it'll interact with it. And what you click on on the book, the TV will react to. So, that's for example, dope. there's a Busy World of Richard Scary one, and you can oh, click yeah. on Mr. Frumble. And uh, he oh, will Mr. maybe Frumble. drive off in his car or something like that. There's also an Echo the Dolphin Jr. game, if you're so interested. Um, in the same vein, wow. Then they have, like, I have a handful. I have a handful. I have a Pocahontas one. I have Mickey's Blast Off to the Past. I have Math Antics with 101 Dalmatians. Quick yes. question about Pocahontas. Did you ever figure out how to paint with the colors of the wind? Uh, it is the Great Riverbend Adventure, so maybe. Maybe. Okay, well, right. we'll, we'll have to find we'll, out. We'll actually, I think there is we'll a painting it. application at the end of it. Like, there's, I think the last page is like a there painting application. I'm 90% certain. <laughs> Answer solved. Um, and in Japan, <laughs> there's solved. Sailor Moon games for the Pico. Yes, there are. Or Pico. Uh, the reason I think it's called the Pico is because of Japan. That would make sense because the I is pronounced like but, so it would be Pico. Yeah. yeah. But I'm, you know what? I would bet here it was Pico or probably. like Picturo. Oh. So it was probably like, it what probably was something wow. like that. Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. It's one of the That's coolest fantastic. things I've ever heard about. I'm like, how is this like, this is from the 90s and you're telling me it's a touchscreen that interacts and like it knows when you flip the pages. So the kids can flip a page and they'll see it change up on the screen. It's, it's so cool. That's awesome. Um, yeah. So I, what was this around the nineties? You think? Yeah, it was yeah, the early nineties. Yeah, early nineties. I can look early up nineties. Yeah. I can look up the date. That's for awesome. You specifically. Yeah. We don't need facts on this podcast, sir. <laughs> what are you doing here? Well, that's why we have him on to bring some facts. <laughs> Someone's got to have them. It's not uh, released um, in Japan in 1993, June 93. And in North America in November 94. Nice. Awesome. Awesome. Would you say that that is probably like the the rarest thing you have or the thing that you're like, whoa, I, I've got something super, super uh, special here or unique? Definitely not the rarest, but it's definitely one of the ones that I like to talk about the most because I think it's one of the more interesting ones. Um, rarest, I would have to say I have a copy of the original Persona. Um, okay. Not complete necessarily. It's actually, it has the front art for the jewel case the manual and the disc, but it's missing the back art of the jewel case. Ah. Don't my brother got it at a yard sale. Don't know what happened to the other stuff. So there's that. And then I also have a game for the NES that's worth a decent amount called Scat, and I'm not making that up. It stands for Special <laughs> Cybernetic Attack Team. 
<laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I thought it meant. Exactly. exactly. Totally. totally. Yeah, I wasn't thinking yeah, anything yeah, else. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't thinking anything else. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, all right. That's super special. Yeah. Well, thank well, you so much for taking us down those uh, those three avenues, uh, video game preservation, brother. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Um, and then, um, you know, news. I'm just going to do one little fun one because I think it's amazing. Um, oh. And uh, so for the news, what I have is um, an amazing collaboration has happened in the world of video games. Do tell. You know, I mentioned on here before, many different collabs before. You know, Fortnite and Street Fighter, Fortnite and Coachella, Fortnite and, well, you know, you do get it. You get it. You know, a lot of collaborations yeah, yeah, yeah. been going on. But nothing has gone together quite as well as EVE Online and Microsoft Excel. Name a more iconic duo. I dare you. I, I dare you. I don't know where this is. Jay and Silent right. Bob. No, no. It's still not as iconic as Microsoft Chewbacca Excel and, and EVE Online. <laughs> Sonic and Tails. Pinky still, and the Brain. You're all still That's wrong. That's got to be it. You're all still wrong. <laughs> you don't realize how powerful this union is because EVE Online has actually been called Spreadsheets in Space. <laughs> right, 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 right. Um, and so, uh, you know, the reason why we're talking about this is because over the uh, last weekend, Eve Fan Fest finally happened. The first one since 2019. Mm-hmm. And this happens in Reykjavik, uh, Iceland, uh, where Eve Online is based, or mm-hmm. the, the development team is. And so, uh, yeah, this this happened. The guy's on stage. And he's like, no, it's not an April Fool's joke, guys. This is actually really happening. Everybody's like, really, what does this mean? What it means is you can actually export your data from the game directly into an Excel-type format. You can what? you can filter things inside wait, the game and then so export cool. it. So wait, that way, wait, wait. So like Eve Online, like yes. b- big space multiplayer adventure. Absolutely. And as far as your your data, is it just like your inventory? No, or like, like your stats. No, it's about like your crafting. Like how many spaceships do I craft per per day or per whatever? Uh, how much did I pay for all of the materials for this? So that way, I could maximize my profits in order to sell things back. This is a game that again, literally, is sp- spreadsheets in space. Yeah, it has space battles. Yeah, it has a bunch of other things. <laughs> but really, the tr- they they have, you want the real action. They actually employ a uh, a real economist. Specifically <laughs> to look at their economy, and they do a, a quarterly report on a the on Eve, on Eve Online's economy. Wait, it's, it's got its own functioning economy. Yes. Oh, actual what? economy that people study. The, this is a game where CEOs, CIOs, yeah. in the C level suite actually play this game because it is like the real world. Right. I, w- I was aware that there are like, yeah, like 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 CEOs and like ambassadors to kind of, like people oh, that yeah. you would not expect to be in the video games that are like living the Eve Online yeah. life. Um, and so 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 they're pairing up with Excel. So when you go to Excel through Eve, is it is it like a just a special themed page? Like, yeah, like what, what was stopping people from already just using Excel? And Eve already. So, so you had to manually type it all out. You had to be like, all right, I spent oh, this much on my on my I stuff. I spent this much on these uh, crystals. I spent this much on this ore. Uh, you know, how much would I have to charge for the ship in order to make a specific amount of profit? Gotcha. Whereas now you can just type it all in, or you can export it all out, and then you can just put it directly into your into your Excel with the formulas and everything else in it already. Wow, it's amazing. That's the dumbest <laughs> thing I've ever heard. <laughs> no. I'm sure you did, but it's iconic, sir. <laughs> but yeah, oh, I, I love it. If you run into an Eve online player, man, expect to get a 
have a fight, <laughs> or at least for them to pay, uh, like hire somebody to fight for them. Eve Online is <laughs> just yeah. one of those games where I'm just so terrified of ever trying, not because I'm afraid I'll get sucked in. Just it just seems so impenetrable. The amount of n- stuff you have to know just to do anything in it, and like I've heard horror stories of like I shouldn't even say horror stories. I remember seeing like news articles about how these giant battles between all these different clans and tribes or nations, excuse me, uh, would Uh just like go at each other. And like, there's like calculations of how much time was lost essentially, like by how many people's ships were destroyed, how much time they invested in the ships and they calculated it all up. And it was like decades of lives just lost. Oh yeah. Oh my God gosh oh yeah they do that they also do what? a real world money because uh you can purchase um uh, credits and they're using real world money um Uh-oh. so i mean it's not it's not like exactly one-to-one type of that type of stuff but you can do that so people right because inflation's happening and so <laughs> yeah so people calculate how much money was also lost in specific battles like hundreds of thousands of real dollars it's amazing I, I love the game I, like i love i don't i haven't played it in quite a while because wow. like josh mentioned it is very impenetrable if you don't really know what you're doing but man it's it's an amazing game so you know what good for EVE online Partnering up with Microsoft. And good for Excel. Yeah, good for Excel. This, this is the most exciting Excel has been in decades. <laughs> decades. <laughs> well done. This is a boon for Excel. It is. It is. <laughs> they need the good press, you know? They need it. They got to be so excited about this. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that'll do it for the news. We'll talk about uh, some of the Nintendo stuff and other things next week. We, we've okay. already gotten a little long-winded into this episode. I love but it. I love it. We still have our final segment, which we haven't done in a little while which is Dragon of the Week. So Dragon of the Week is our segment where we highlight people involved in the gaming industry somehow. Uh, Just people out there doing the work to just improve the industry that we love. And Josh, you're actually going to be bringing us not just a Dragon of the Week, but Dragons of the Week. Dragon Eye, Dragon Knights. The Dragonites. Oh, they've evolved. They've evolved. (laughs) They were Dratinis, and now they're uh, Dragonairs. Anyway, um, yeah, I figured since we did a long discussion on video game preservation and video game history, I thought it'd be interesting to just kind of highlight some of the people in the industry who are doing the Lord's work, who are really they're the boots on the ground, as you would say. Uh, I always think of that Brian Reagan joke about boots on the ground. Anyone ever heard that? I have Then I'm not going to tell it here and butcher but, it. So, <laughs> all right. We will look that, it up. That is we'll like it up. the <laughs> worst kind of joke ever. Like, ever heard this joke? Nope. Uh, let's not butcher it now. <laughs> um, so, uh, I have a handful of people, and there's way too many people, so I'm I'm going to leave out some important people, I promise you. There's so many amazing people in the preservation scene that I think are worth talking about. Um, mm-hmm. I will say, um, f- the first ones I'm going to mention, Frank Cifaldi and Kelsey Lewin, they are, Frank Cifaldi is the founder of the Video Game History Foundation, Kelsey Lewin is the co-director with Frank as the head, as the director, so they're, they're co-directors of the foundation, Frank is the founder. And they do a podcast called the Video Game History Hour. And on that podcast, it is filled with a litany of incredible people who do really amazing things in the game preservation scene, whether it's they interview other directors of other video game nonprofits that uh, preserve video game history, or they interview people who do documentaries, who do uh, YouTubers, um, people who do 
like essays, like one of my personal favorites from their podcast. And I don't, I didn't put that on my dragons list just because I don't know much about him, but his name is Elijah Lee. And he was able to find the first ever black female game designer. And her name is Muriel awesome. Tramis. Uh, she, I believe she's French. I'm blanking on uh, what, what country she's initially from, but it's a very interesting uh, episode. And he, they, they talked to him about how he kind of went, how he went down the rabbit hole to find who the first black female game designer was. And let me tell you, there's, there's a decent amount of information out there on her. And I think, I don't know if you, have you guys covered her at all as a dragon of the week? Uh, we have not. No, that's my recollection. No, but it, it sounds, sounds pretty awesome. She's yeah. definitely worth checking out. I don't want to spoil some of the stuff that she's done. I would much rather have you guys be able to find her on your own just because I think it's, 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 you know, part of the reward is being is being able to discover it so definitely check oh, it her is. out um awesome. muriel tramis uh t-r-a-m-i-s um nice. so anyway so frank and kelsey do amazing work they host these charity streams not charity streams they, they're they're well they are charity streams that so you you pay you buy a ticket and then all the money goes to their charity um, and they do these really amazing streams where like the most recent one they had on a lot of the higher ups from Nintendo Power who worked on the Nintendo Power magazine. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, Gail Tinden, Howard Lincoln, um, uh, a lot of the people who are responsible for um, making the Nintendo Ma- Power magazine what it is. And in fact, this got, gets me thinking someone I forgot to mention on the list at the top of this, Brian, I'm sorry. I'm adding this one in right now because he was on my Go podcast. His name is Stefan Reese. He is known as the art of Nintendo power on Twitter. He collects the artwork that was used for the covers and the art inside of Nintendo power magazine. And he actually ended up starting his own nonprofit that is preserving the actual artwork of like video game uh of video games like so for example he will oh. find the original copy of a cover that an artist did that you would see as the cover of a magazine uh sometimes on nintendo power they would have oh, okay. little That's clay cool. figures that they would have a picture taken of he finds those original clay figures and he and he, he preserves them all um and he spends can we ask him to find a certain golden crown? I know, chance? right? That would be incredible. <laughs> or sword? Or sword, even. We'll be. Ha- I'll be happy with just the, with the crown, even just a fair stone. Enough, I'll enough. take anything. <laughs> Get him on the case. He he does amazing work. So yeah, Stefan Reese and Art of Nintendo Power on Twitter, but he was in that Nintendo Power like uh, presentation that Frank and Kelsey put together for the Video Game History Foundation. They also did one with Monkey Island where they had Ron Gilbert on and they showed the source code of the video game and it showed how easy it was to develop with it. Um, So anyone who's interested in that type of thing, that you can, in fact, all these you can watch for free on YouTube now. It would just cost money for the time being. So they don't keep it behind a paywall. They, after they wait a couple months and then they release it for free to the public. Um, Nice. So they do amazing work. Uh, Norm Caruso, also known as the gaming historian on YouTube, he is amazing because I would say he has been one of the biggest voices of popularizing video game history and preservation because he does kind of like documentary style YouTube videos that are very palatable to people who don't know about video games. He he mm-hmm. makes it in a way that's he he can present it in a way that's interesting even to people who don't necessarily like video game history or not even like video games. Um, Pat Contry, I mentioned, uh, he is also known as Pat the NES Punk on YouTube. 
Um, he hasn't, he doesn't do a lot of Pat the NES punk stuff anymore, but he is the host of a podcast called the completely unnecessary podcast, also known as the CU podcast. (laughs) And they're a weekly podcast. They cover gaming news, but they kind of do it from a, they, they, they focus on a lot other of other topics that aren't in the big realm of things. Like they've talked, we talked about collecting, they're, they're talking about, they, they've highlighted a lot of the issues with Wada Games, the grading company that grades your games, kind of like what CGC does for comic books, um, and yeah. the scam that's that, and how that's like pretty much inflated the retro game market with, the, and they they've artificially inflated the retro game market, and how one of the co-invest, one of the initial investors in Wada Games is a guy named I think Jim Halpert, who is the founder of. Uh, heritage auctions and Jim Halper was also someone who uh, rigged the coin collecting market back in the 80s and he got he literally has a what? criminal indictment against him like he got, he was convicted of it and stuff like that so there as well he should there's a whole that's a whole rabbit hole that I almost went down and kind of dipped my toe almost. in a little bit there you pulled yourself back. I did. I pulled myself back. But so, but besides <laughs> that, besides covering things like that on the podcast, he also uh, writes and organizes the NES and Super Nintendo guidebooks. He has uh, these massive textbook size books that he puts out of every North American NES game with a little review and taught and screenshots of it and it's literally like hundreds of pages long it looks like a textbook from college it's huge and he's done one for nintendo the original nes and the super nintendo and he is working on one currently for the n64 so i figured i'd highlight wow, him because it's, it's once again it's kind of like a coffee table book it's just nice to look at yeah it's a uh, history did, book yeah did um did he uh, kickstart these by yes he case? did um, okay, then I, yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I think we have one or two. <laughs> um, and he'll be doing one for the N64 at some point, I'm assuming, as nice. well. That's awesome. Um, That's awesome. Dustin Hubbard. Can he do one for the Pika? That'd be great. That'd be great. That would be that would be a short one. It would definitely be a short one. Yeah. Not, there was, <laughs> you know what? It would just be the I got coasters. You. It wouldn't be a book. It would just be coasters. Pretty much. Though, so, um, yeah. okay. I mentioned him before. Jeremy Parrish did a Virtual Boy book where he documented all the, what, 13 Virtual Boy releases or whatever there's only like 13 out there (laughs) yeah that's amazing um dustin hubbard uh from gaming alexandria uh gaming alexandria i mean for those who know history alexandria the library of alexandria the legendary library that got burned uh, burned to the ground was it burned or did it get swept up in the sand i forget was it burned uh it was was burned burned. i was pretty sure it was burned um uh because it had invaders invaders uh like, we don't like your knowledge. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty yeah. much. <laughs> we don't like your history. It's all wrong. So he he <laughs> collects scans of like he pretty much documents a lot of gaming magazines and tries to get even like the low print like fanzines from like the 80s and 90s that someone would print out and just distribute around a town and stuff like that. Like they try to track stuff down like that. You can follow him on Twitter at Gaming Alexandria. And the last one I wanted to mention because I've been going for a bit is Rachel Weil. She is uh, she is a programmer. She does. I think she's worked for Microsoft. I don't know what if she still does or what she's doing currently, but she founded the Femicom Museum and it's a website that's Ooh. all devoted to girl games and not necessarily just games like i thought this was interesting because she kind of is uh 
arguing for the idea of girly games are okay. Like you shouldn't feel guilty about liking quote unquote girly games like Barbie and Mary Kate and Ashley. Like just because it's catering to the girl stereotype doesn't mean that it's bad and doesn't mean that you should be afraid to like it. Even as a feminist, I think she kind of goes into that too. Like, it's okay to look at it and acknowledge the problematic things with it yeah. while also being able to say, yeah, I really like this. So she's, she does a whole, she has a whole webpage called Femicom devoted to documenting games like that. That's a fascinating um, mission. I really like that. Yeah, that's great. That's why I found her so interesting. I've reached out to her twice to come on my podcast and she has not responded yet. So we will, I'm going to keep on trying. I'm hopefully going to get her on Third the show at some charm. point. <laughs> But I, those are just some, like, there's so many people. Like, I could have put Jeremy Parrish on here because he does a whole lot. Uh, like I mentioned, Stefan Reese from before. Um, but there's just so many people out there who do this type of amazing work. And just to kind of list them all again, Frank Cifaldi and Kelsey Lewin of the Video Game History Foundation, Norm Caruso from the YouTube channel Gaming Historian, Pat Contry from the CU Podcast, as well as his YouTube channel Pat the NES Punk. Uh, he has those Nintendo and Super Nintendo guidebooks. Dustin Hubbard from Gaming Alexandria. And there's tons of others that do something similar to him. Um, and Rachel Weil from the Femicom Museum. And I guess one last one to add that i think would be interesting uh my life in gaming try try from trying cory from my life in gaming um for those who have never seen that youtube channel it's getting the best visual fidelity you can out of your retro consoles uh it is fascinating they talk about how like like what all the different video quality signals you know v like uh oh my gosh hold on it's uh like composite compared to RF, compared to S video, mm. compared to HDMI, all compared to RGB, stuff. and how all that like well HDMI is digital, but you get the idea. All the different analog signals yeah. and how they like the different levels of quality and how they even work, like how they transmit light across the wires and crap like that. It's incredibly fascinating. Um, so definitely check them out. And that's, I promise, I know I went on a rant there, but that's what I got. Those were my oh. recommendations for dragons, the dragonites of the week, the dragonites <laughs> of the week. Thank you so much. And it's, it's just super uplifting to know that there are people out there, this Avengers style team, this entire heroic <laughs> roster of people that are out there, um, putting so much work, effort, uh, and passion into preserving games in in multiple ways and it's it's and you you know it's not easy oh, it's no. not just <laughs> even what you just explained there we we're talking about you know getting these these older games and preserving the manuals but like they're even preserving the platforms you have to play them on not just the consoles but the TVs the wires the connections the, the like there's so much uh even surrounding just the core of what they're uh, preserving that that uh, it really is just um, remarkable to say the we least. We don't have time for this. This could have been a topic in of itself. Emulation. Oh yeah. What's right. like oh, the 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 moral gray areas of emulation? Yeah. And just without diving into that whole topic, be very clear. Console emulators are completely legal. ROMs of video games are not. That is in terms of a Correct. legality distinction. That is the big thing to note. Uh, you can download an NES emulator, and it is completely legal. Downloading all the ROMs is a different story. Um, 
and if you want to know more about that (laughs) noted check out frank cefaldi's gdc speech gdc um presentations he has two of them all talking about emulation fantastic watches they're about an hour long and definitely worth your while nice well thank you yeah thank you so much and uh thank you for being on and and sharing your love of game preservation with us uh yeah yeah, i feel educated and entertained i got that edutainment (laughs) thank you so much Combine the two so Your own well. Sega so Pico well. right there. It happened. Yeah. <laughs> you are our Sega Oh, thank Pico. you. you I'll are. take that as a compliment. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, thanks so much for coming on, on the podcast for and me. for uh, um, chilling with us. I got to say, it's, it's really been fun um, getting to know you over the past couple of years. I, I uh, informally regard you as like our our podcast older brother, <laughs> even though you're younger than all of us. You are age-wise younger than all of us. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs> like podcast-wise, you've always been there to kind of give us a little little pointers here and there and, and you know, very grateful for you kind of like put getting us on your podcast and and teaching us a few things as, as we're, we're, you know, continuing to try and um, evolve in our in our own content. So we just want to thank you for, for being on and also thank you for everything you, you've helped us with over the past few years. I haven't yeah. done really much of anything, but you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> we definitely appreciate it. Um, and also before we leave, we want to mention that if you are listening to us and are missing Manda and her lovely voice, Today on your mm-hmm. podcast, uh, still loading podcast, Manda's going to be on there. You guys are going to be talking about uh, Monkey Secret Island, of Monkey correct? Island. Yes, we recorded it a couple weeks ago, and uh, it was a fantastic conversation all about the the adventures of Guybrush. And to in in connection with this episode, we do dive into a little bit of the history of the game. Uh, just a little bit of a fun fact to like kind of whet people's appetites, or however that word is pronounced. Oh. Um, <laughs> Guybrush gets his name because the file extension for the art that the that the art program that they used was dot brush and they didn't have a name for him yet so they just called him guy <laughs> so it was literally guy dot brush and it became Guybrush. oh that's all nice. i can imagine tim schaefer and ron gilbert just being like that that's funny and just like laughing that's about it. it that's so, it so there you go that's a little, <laughs> a little that. fun fact it's a teaser <laughs> Ooh, well, a teaser. Josh, where can the, the good people find you to find these podcasts and also the other content you put out there? You can find me almost everywhere at StillLoadingPod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can also find me on Twitch that I never, ever promote because I'm lazy and I always forget it too, but it's at StillLoadingPod on Twitch as well. Um, you can check it out, all of the stuff I have there. I'm actually doing my first ever panel this month on Saturday, May 28th. I will be at Thy Geekdom Con, which is near Philly, Philadelphia. And you can go check that out. Uh, if you just search Thy Geekdom Con, if you're in the Philly area and want to check out my panel, I'm doing a brief history of James Bond in video games. So yeah, if you're in the area, check that out. If you like what you heard here, I don't. I talk a little bit about history, maybe not as in-depth as we did here, but I do bring it up in almost every episode. Uh, episode I'd like to shout out because I'm super proud of it. It's probably one of my favorite episodes I've ever done. And I think it's kind of like an interesting entry point for anyone trying to get into my show. My Final Fantasy Fantasy Draft. Uh, so yes. if you yes. and basically the, yes. this episode is what happens when you take fantasy sports and combine it with Final Fantasy. And the results are pretty interesting, if I do say so myself. It's so good. I was listening to it while while exercising and I had to stop. Because I was like, like rooting for certain people <laughs> to get certain characters, and it, it almost turned into like a long form Mad Lib 
where everyone is picking characters and story elements, and then you kind of listed out what every each one of these combination of games would be, and each one was just as funny <laughs> as the next. It's an excellent episode. I, I fully agree. People should should check that out. And in an organizational tour de force on your part. <laughs> it wasn't too. It was fun. I love doing it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah. So, yeah. That, unfortunately, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, you can always find us online everywhere as well. You know, wherever we always are. Here. There. Right. Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah. You can check us out on, on Twitter, on Instagram, and also on Twitch. Make sure to also look in our Discord where we have a podcast channel discussion panel uh, channel. So, if you like what you hear... If you heard today and you want to learn more, we'll be discussing it more in depth in the discussion panel over the next week. We can throw some links in there so you can actually check out some of these YouTube videos of these uh, lectures and uh, that we've been uh, mentioning about video game preservation. Uh, and that's all at Taste of Dragons. And uh, you can find our link tree uh, on any of those uh, locations. Absolutely. So as always, my name is Brian. My name is Troy. And I am Joe. And that's Josh. Hello, I'm Josh. Yeah. I mean, goodbye. It's the end of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> and we are The, the Taste, Taste of, of Dragons. Dragons. Have a great week, everyone. Have a great week. Man, I want to go play that Pika now. I, I, I need a goblin. I need, I need a sweet <laughs> goblin. I need with Mr. Crumble and uh, Mr. Fixit. I know. Taste of Dragons Gaming Podcast. A podcast for everyone's taste.